I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A couple of days ago, the president, Donald J. Trump, held a press conference, and you could say he totaled it. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Your authority is total. It's total. Afterwards, I heard commentators saying, actually, governors and constitutional experts disagree. Constitutional experts? Really, anyone with a glancing knowledge of how government works would say, nah, that ain't right. But that proved to be a misstatement that he backed away from, and perhaps he learned from. There are a couple things that don't really work that well for Trump, like trusting the thoughts that pop into his head. But what does work? Pre-produced videos. So today, he once more relied on the AV squad to make his case. I think they said that there's a, a brief clip that we have of General Motors sent to us by General Motors. And uh, I think they might be wanting to play that for your benefit, please. Indeed, there was. And through the miracle of time-lapse photography, an empty room in this video was turned into a full room. And we saw some sort of machine assembled. It looked like it was a printer, maybe a very fancy toaster. Turns out we were told it was a ventilator. I thought ventilators included huge breathing tubes. Actually, two breathing tubes, an inhale one, an exhale one. But this was the high-tech toaster thingy that powers the tubes. To score the assembling video, they use the music they usually play under commercials for financial services or sometimes during episodes of This American Life. The president then complained about getting judges approved because that's on the top of everyone's mind during this pandemic. Next, on to an update about how he suspended travel from China. Did you know that? He, yeah, suspended travel from China, banned it. If you were totally ignorant and you didn't know that, you're actually smarter than if you listened to what Trump said and took him at his word because after he supposedly shut down the flights, 40,000 people have traveled to the U.S. from China. This was post-ban. Oh, that, by the way, that stat is as of two weeks ago, according to the New York Times. Later, Trump briefed the American people on a very sophisticated technology, but he was careful not to let his in-depth knowledge get the best of him. He didn't want to confuse the layman too badly. And we're talking about the telemedical. It's a new thing. Whoa, whoa, slow down, professor. But this guy is obviously so surrounded by a brain trust, the likes of which the White House had never seen, 
except perhaps when Thomas Jefferson isolated alone. He just had to, he couldn't help but getting into the granular details of policymaking. We spoke to a lot of very, very smart people, the highest of the high tech, the level of IQ on some of those calls was about the highest you've ever seen on a phone call, that I can tell you. But we have a lot of great thought went into those calls and a lot of uh, questions came out and also statements, very strong statements as to what they recommend. It was, I think it was a great day. We did a lot of, a lot of calling with a lot of very prominent people, but more importantly, very smart people and people that love our country. All right, I'm convinced. Let's reopen America. What more do you need than that? It was a phone call with smart people where they were asked not just questions, and questions would have been fine. Questions would have been enough. What kind of monster do you have to be not to be satisfied with questions, to demand more? But if you are such a greedy, greedy party, well, then I got news for you, mister. The people on the phone, the smart people, they ask questions. Oh, yeah. But you know what? They made statements. So stick that in your pipe strongly and truly greatly respect it. Trump finished the briefing by arguing with reporters a little bit and maligning the World Health Organization, thereby replenishing his life fluids to allow him to serve another day. And then he skipped out of the Rose Garden at full vim, plain to the naked eye. And I do not need one of those telemedicals to tell me about that. On the show today, I spiel about the governor of South Dakota, who has a pork plant in her jurisdiction that has become a worse corona hotspot than the Cook County Jail or the USS Theodore Roosevelt. We will examine her own justifications, confident, confident justifications for what she didn't do and why she didn't do it. But first, he is one of the most important and interesting journalists covering this COVID outbreak, and he's doing it visually. John Burns Murdoch, works for the Financial Times. You must follow him on Twitter. He is a data visualization expert. He is also an expert on the course of this pandemic. And I will talk to him about how he sees and allows us to see the course of the virus. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
During this pandemic, there has been, oh, I'm not even going to call it a silver lining, but a phenomenon that I've taken great solace and great information in, and that is the burgeoning wealth of online charts and statistics. You can go to the Johns Hopkins site. You can go to any number of sites that take the data and information we have and present it in a way that hopefully makes you, as someone very concerned about the pandemic, say, oh, I never thought of it that way. Leading this charge is the Financial Times data visualization expert, John Byrne Murdoch. If you don't follow him and you are interested in this stuff, you need to follow him now. He's spearheading the FT's analysis, data visual analysis of the pandemic. I'm going to ask him some questions about how he makes his choices and also draw on his expertise from what he sees just as someone who's mired in the data. John, thanks for joining me. No problem. Great to be here. So give me your background um, in data visualization and how much epidemiology or virology or what this subject, however you define this subject matter, how much had you done before a month ago? Ha, that's, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so, you know, straight up, straight out of the gate, I'll say, yeah, I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist or a serologist or any of the um, gists that, that would actually bring domain expertise here. But I, yeah, I've been working with data as a, as a data journalist at the Financial Times now for about six, seven years, and previously was at The Guardian in London also doing similar stuff. So, yeah, my, you know, my expertise is in taking data, analyzing data, seeing what the most salient trends appear to be, and thinking about this from a journalistic perspective. So, taking complex data sets and subject matter and distilling them, making them clearer for people. And in terms of the, you know, the, the subject matter itself, I've done, I've done similar work um, on the Ebola crisis a few years ago. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with our climate correspondents a lot. So, I, so the idea of working on scientific um, data is not new to me. My, I mean, my uh, academic background, I, I uh, majored in... Uh, earth sciences specializing in climate science so the idea of using um data to to really get to the the crux of what's going on and then communicating it through visualization has always been sort of part of how i uh, how i do things essentially so as you make your charts you a uh, fundamental choice is you have to decide what your y-axis is going to be so there is a way to present the chart chart where it goes up numerically or the way that you decided which is a logarithmic progression and all that means is on one line it might be 50 on the next line it might be 100 we're talking about number of cases but then above that might be 500 and above that might be 1000 in other words Every uh, spot on the y-axis is not equidistant from each other. Tell me why you made that choice and why that helps us better understand the course of this pandemic. Sure. So uh, there's a few reasons for that, really. Um, one of them is is just that with a with a virus, you're talking about something which we know is going to grow exponentially. It's going to you, you're going to go from one case to two cases to four to eight to sixteen. So that idea of doubling rates it doesn't go one two three four five and all that all that means is that the shape of our data naturally is going to be exponential so if we were to plot this using a conventional linear scale the line for any country is going to arc upwards from a flat line to a very steep line and the issue i have with that as a, as a visualization journalist is just that that means you're using a lot of visual bandwidth as it were in your chart to show this pattern that doesn't actually tell us anything interesting all it tells us 
is that you've got an exponential curve going on. And given that you would see that for every country, a lot of the sort of visual noise in the chart would just be these these curves which simply show exponent that you're on an exponential curve. Um, right, right. Everything would look like a hockey stick. And there be exactly. the blade the blade of the stick might be at a steeper uh, trajectory, but it's a whole bunch of hockey sticks. Yeah, and you know that's that is a true representation of the numbers. There's nothing there's nothing technically wrong with that. But if you're trying to make every pixel in the graphic convey something meaningful and useful and you know something that allows you to compare one country to another then I think it's more useful to use a, a form in terms of log, the logarithmic axis, which essentially just irons out that exponential noise. So, so you, there's an assumption here that you know, we all accept that we're dealing with exponential outbreaks. And, and if one looks at the numbers on the y-axis, then of course they do show that. But what we then gain by going to an exponential, to, to a logarithmic axis, is you can focus on the slope, and the slope is now meaningful. The slope now means how different are the rates of growth instead of just, is this country having an exponential outbreak to which the answer is always yes. Now, your main chart is about deaths because that certainly focuses the mind and uh, that's where the stakes are highest. Were you, I mean, have you, or were you to plot either critical care or just infections, uh, would the charts look much different than the death charts? Not hugely. Um, and so infections, if, if, we, if we mean infections as in number of confirmed cases, we do, I, do plot, plot, I do plot those ones every day as well. So you can see the, both the cases and then the lagging indicator um, of, of deaths. Um, hospitalizations, critical care, I suspect, yes, would look very similar. Um, and the main reason I haven't been plotting those is just that, that fewer countries report that data. So in order to get a big international comparison, confirmed cases and deaths are the most ubiquitous indicators that we have. Yeah. In all this, in all the countries that you've traced, is it the case that there is one or maybe two huge centers of outbreak? And if you took those away, their overall numbers would dramatically change? I guess I got to caveat that with an asterisk. I mean, there in the UK, it's, it's only fair to look at it that way since such a huge percentage of the population lives in London or thereabouts. But go, going back to the original question, if you were to take away the biggest source, the one hotspot or the giant hotspot in a different country, maybe the Lombardy region of Italy or New York in the United States, would these charts change dramatically? Yes, absolutely. They'd change very dramatically. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say it's, it's almost the opposite. You know, if I'd be astonished if there were many countries where that wouldn't have a huge if, impact, because generally what we see in most countries is that you have essentially one large outbreak. So obviously China had Wuhan, Korea had Daegu, um, the UK, the, the overwhelming majority of, of cases and, and unfortunately deaths are happening in London. In Italy, it was Lombardy. In, in the US, it's New York. So, we really are. Uh, this is and this is one of the issues with with a lot of the analysis on this, um, and it's why, as as well as my charts at country level, I produce charts every day at regional level. So you know, so I'm looking at U.S. states, I'm looking at sub regions of the U.K., of France, of Italy, of Germany, all over the world, because these outbreaks are much better understood as happening at a local level. You'll get one city where, because of the density, because of how many people. Are interacting um, and because those cities are international hubs where you get the, the first patient that is really how this works and you know that's another reason that I think looking at national 
country level per capita is misleading because ultimately you have a series of cities or regions suffering from outbreaks. It's, it's misleading to suggest that the US has an outbreak um, when it's really that the East Coast, New York and New Jersey have an outbreak and California is facing something and, and Detroit and Chicago are facing something. These these are the country country as a unit of analysis here is actually, I'd say, pretty suboptimal. Are there other highly correlative conditions that tell you, that would tell you how badly an outbreak would occur? Some items that have been mentioned are perhaps it's humidity, daily temperature, population density, reliance on mass transit. Of those that you've looked at, do any other seem very correlative to how bad an outbreak is? There's all sorts of factors, and that's the that's the main point to make here. Like, there's no single factor that is that explains all of this, and there are many factors that explain some, but very much not all. So, one thing that I've looked at, as I mentioned, is the is the lockdown date, and on a on an admittedly admittedly small sample of, uh, let me just see how many countries I'm using to look at this. Um, of only about twenty countries that have good data. The date at which, or you know, the, the relative time at which a country locks down explains about half of the variation in how how rapidly its outbreak spreads. So that's a big chunk, but it's yeah. that leaves half of it unexplained. And there are all sorts of other things that go into that. So I've talked about how I don't think per capita stats are a brilliant or an especially useful way of looking at this, but population size also does explain a bit of it. Population size explains. Again, at the national level, which for reasons we've explained is is a bit crude, that explains about another 10% of it. Uh, the number of major urban centres explains another few percent. Other things that I haven't looked at yet but would be would expect to perhaps have an influence are things like the number of flight connections that a, that, that a city or a country has in terms of... The, and because that, you know that would suggest how many possible patient zeros it could have, as it were. You've also got things like the average household size. So one of the yes. things that's been talked about as a big factor in Spain and Italy is that they have large numbers of multi-generation households. So households where you'd have an elderly person who could be vulnerable to the virus, living in close quarters with younger, more mobile people who'd be, who'd be moving around and could have brought it to them before countries knew what was going on. So that's a factor. You've also got the simple demographics. So there's a, a bit of reasonable consensus that one of the reasons that Italy had a particularly bad outbreak was its um, very top-heavy population in terms of age, a lot of um, very elderly people. And we know that fatality yeah, I believe rates, Italy and Japan are the two oldest countries in the world, right? Exactly that. So, so yeah, all of these things have an impact. Lockdown, earlier lockdowns do seem to help, but if you're in a country that is suffering from all of these other, let's say, pre-existing conditions on a national level, then simply locking down early isn't going to save you. And likewise, if you lock down late, but you've got various other things working in your favor, such as a young population or a relatively isolated population. For example, we see that island communities, island regions are, are dealing with flatter curves so far, then, then those things could mitigate. So yeah, there's no silver bullet here. And it, again, this is why placing sole blame on decisions on, on lockdowns is not the way to go. It, of course, it, lockdowns help or hinder depending on how they go. But there are lots of other factors here too. There are different words for this phenomenon. What happens next? Perhaps, let's hope, the pandemic uh, subsides given in the Northern Hemisphere summer temperatures 
or perhaps there's some effect of herd immunity. But what I'm talking about is the echo, the boom, the W curve, the fear that it could return in the fall. Once it does, and in years or months afterwards, you'll be able to give us some great charts about how that played out. But beforehand, can you draw on past coverage of Ebola, how this is working, any other statistics to give a prediction that would help us navigate those choices we'll have to be making in the fall? Unfortunately, I can't, is the honest answer there. Um, but that's I, honest and I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, that's I don't have any sort of silver bullet answers there. But again, the main thing I'd say is a lot of this stuff will take time. It will. We can look at places like Austria, Australia, New Zealand, Norway right now and say, things look really good there, but it's still too early to say that they've succeeded. And also in a lot of these cases, success often, it doesn't mean problem solved, we're done. It means the the first offensive, as it were, has been, has been held back, but those defensive mechanisms that prevented the outbreak taking off are now going to have to be either maintained permanently or rolled on and off for the foreseeable future until there's a vaccine. So I think I'd certainly say that, of course, a country turning the corner and and reducing its new daily cases or or deaths is is absolutely a good thing. But it it does not mean great. We're now a couple of weeks away from normal life. So you know, just just to give an example, if we look at Wuhan again, it was about two months after daily new deaths in Wuhan peaked that they lifted the lockdown, and they're still only doing that gradually. So peaking the curve is a fantastic thing to do, but you know, we're, that doesn't mean like normal life immediately resumes. And as I say, we're going to have to keep watching places like Austria and Denmark, which are relaxing their conditions at the moment, before we're really able to say what worked, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what countries can learn from that, and, and when this might all actually be a thing of the past. John Byrne Murdoch is the senior data visualization journalist at the Financial Times. I made him talk in words and not in pictures, but he, he did great. Thank you so much, John. Thanks a lot. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And now the spiel. On Saturday, South Dakota had 626 confirmed coronavirus cases. Sunday is up to 7.30. Monday, 8.68. Yesterday, it stood at 988, and today it was up to 1,100. Faced with these figures, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem described her state status this way. We are flattening our curve in South Dakota. Yesterday, in a confident, supremely self-assured, rigidly unwavering news conference, Noam said of her decision not to ask citizens to stay at home. It is working. This was news to Sioux Falls, the biggest city in the state, where a Smithfield food processing plant has passed the Cook County Jail in Chicago and the USS Theodore Roosevelt to become the nation's number one corona hotspot with 644 cases in that one plant. No matter, says Nome, because of one simple, indisputable, inarguable fact. 
stories written uh, that a shelter in place would have prevented this outbreak at Smithfield. That is absolutely false. It is not true impact on what happened at Smithfield. And that is because regardless of a shelter in place order had been in place throughout the state of South Dakota or not, this plant would have been up and running because it is exempted as an essential business that is a part of our critical infrastructure plan to make sure that we can put food on the table for Americans and people across the world. Um, that is something that um, needs to be uh, stated again so that we make sure the reporting is honest, it's fair, and it's accurate. Well, there you have it. And by it, I mean COVID-19. Except for one thing. How do you get the virus inside the plant to begin with? I checked the list of food prepared at this plant. It's almost all pork and no bat. No bat soup, no bats in a blanket, no jalapeno bat poppers. The virus was brought into the plant in the first place by someone who was living, interacting, breathing in a state with the least stringent corona policy in America. And now they have the worst coronavirus hotspot in America. Coincidence? Totally, says the governor. Make sure that I'm making decisions to actually do good, not make decisions that just make people feel good. Yes, who would want to feel good? Like not have a high fever and a debilitating cough and difficulty breathing and life-threatening lung incapacitation. Who'd want that? The idea that shelter in place couldn't have prevented the virus from getting inside the plant to spread in the first place isn't just my supposition or really my inference based on logic. It was actually backed up by the prior days, two days ago, the governor had a press conference and there was South Dakota's health secretary, Kim Malsum Ridson, and she said this about the county that the Smithfield plant is located in. Yeah, I'm not sure that we can um, definitively pinpoint, um, you know, the exact cause of, of the cases um, at Smithfield. I can tell you that Minnehaha County did already have substantial community spread um, at the time that we uh, saw the first case among a Smithfield employee. The closest person to the health director, as she said that, was Governor Nome. Now, the closest public official that the people of Sioux Falls can turn to for something akin to a solution is Mayor Paul Ten Hacken, who, like Nome, is a Republican with strong ties to the business community, but unlike Nome, wants to actually do something to compel the citizenry to stay at home. Governor Nome says no. The two requests the mayor of Sioux Falls has asked of me, number one, was to issue a shelter in place for Minnehaha and Lincoln County. I am not going to do that at that time, at this time. I don't believe it's appropriate considering the data and the facts and the science that we have. Although the governor did give into a feeling at one point, not a fact, but a feeling when asked about the status a viral spread throughout her state. Um, we believe it's gotten better statewide. Well, the plant, critical though it might have been to infrastructure, the pork processing part of infrastructure, that is, the plant has now been shut down. There's not a lot of, you know, evidence for that, though that one piece of evidence that the plant is a critical part of infrastructure was cited again and again and again. Let's find out some context on that. The Department of Homeland Security has issued guidance on the essential critical infrastructure workforce. It defines what businesses count as critical infrastructure. Yes, there is pork processing plants. Also, critical infrastructure. Workers supporting groceries, pharmacies, convenience store, and other retail, including unattended 
and vending that sell human food, pet food, and pet supply and beverage products. So the Coke and Pepsi guy, their critical infrastructure. Workers who support sawmills and distribution of forest products, including, but not limited to, timber, paper, and other wood. Retail fuel centers, such as gas stations and truck stops. Propane gas distribution centers, hello Hank Hill. Auto repair shops. And workers supporting production and distribution of credit and debit cards. Not that these aren't important. I'm not looking down on anybody. We really do need these people. But the governor does make it sound like the pork packers are members of the Apollo 11 mission or SEAL Team 6. And also, stay-at-home orders are there to protect these workers from other citizens who might have the virus. These workers and propane distributors and everyone pumping gas. Finally, in yesterday's news conference, Governor Noam was given one last chance to grapple with the simple notion that aggressive stay-at-home measures would cover people who live and socialize with critical infrastructure workers, thereby limiting the chances that the critical infrastructure workers acquire the virus. She was asked, quote, You said a stay-at-home order would not have protected the workers at the Smithfield plant. Were their family members self-isolated? because that's the only way these workers would have been protected. Here is the governor's answer in full. I'm not certain what you mean if you think that the family members infected the workers. Uh, the first indication we had is that the virus uh, tested positive from an employee in the plant, um, and that is a critical infrastructure facility and would have been operating whether there was a shelter in place uh, in place in the state of South Dakota or not. Uh, that that facility would have continued to operate. Ah, ah, good point. Thanks for clarifying. The governor has, at this point, issued this guidance for America's number one COVID-19 hotspot. The first one is that we asked Smithfield to take a pause. Sort of like opening the bar door a crack after the horses have burned to death inside. But did you know barns are a critical infrastructure facility? This isn't to say that Governor Noam isn't taking aggressive actions in other areas, in fact, according to a state news release, <clears throat> Governor Christy Noem announced that South Dakota, with Sanford Health leading the effort, will be the first state with a comprehensive statewide clinical trial to determine the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine in treating and preventing COVID-19. Let us just hope that the drug does good and doesn't just feel good. And that's it for today's show. At moments like these, Margaret Kelly, just associate producer, longs to take a trek to that old quarry in town where if you shout at just the right angle, you could hear the reverberation of your voice for five to 10 minutes. And this is why that abandoned quarry should be considered a critical infrastructure facility. Daniel Schrader is the just executive producer. He'd rather be at Comic-Con. Comic-Con, of course, being a critical infrastructure facility. The gist. So the Smithfield Processing Plant is a worse hotspot than the Cook County Jail. Well, not when Jake and Elwood are there. Let's rock! Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>